Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey everybody, it's Sam from the Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, I have Thomas Philippon. He's a finance professor and an economist at the NYU Stern School of Business. He's just written a book called The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Free Markets. If you've been listening to Vergecast, this book was written for us. He starts with the question of why cell phone plans are more expensive in the United States than Europe and Asia. So we talked about that for a long time. Thomas moved here from France in the 90s. He noticed everything from laptops to internet access was cheaper in America, but over time it's gotten way more expensive. And so we talked about why that is. The answer, unsurprisingly, is consolidation in a lot of our markets. The average internet customer in France has five choices of providers. In America, it's one and a half, which means most people just have one and some people have two. That's a big deal. And you can apply that theory of consolidation and prices and whether or not concentration is good or bad to a lot of industries. Thomas makes the point that in some places, concentration is actually good for consumers. It creates value. But in many places, healthcare, technology, air travel, that consolidation has actually resulted in way higher prices for us. And because the prices go up slowly, we don't actually notice. I loved this conversation. I'm excited for you all to listen to it. I think a lot of people should read this book. If you've been listening to the Vergecast and you've been paying attention to our big conversations about whether or not we should break up these companies, whether we should regulate them, whether tech companies with network effects like Google and Facebook are different than companies like AT&T and GE, this conversation is going to be up your alley. And I really, really think people should read this book. Check it out. This is Thomas Philpon on the Vergecast. Thomas Philippon, you are a professor of finance at NYU Stern School of Business. Thanks for being on the Vergecast. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you've written a book. I don't. We've never met before, but I literally read the first page of your book, The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Markets, and thought, oh, he wrote a book for me. Because you started this book by wondering why cell phone plans in the United States were so expensive. And then the answer is because our markets are bad, which is, Vergecast listeners know, something we are constantly talking about. But give me sort of your background and how you came to this specific question. Well, I came read very indirectly. To be honest, just like everybody else, I was pretty much clueless about these questions until I started researching them by myself, even though I should have noticed. Uh, because if you go back and forth between the US and, say, Europe or even most of Asia, actually, you should notice that things that used to be much cheaper in the US are now much more expensive in the U.S. And somehow you didn't notice the difference because the changes are very, very slow. You know, it's the old story of if you cook a frog very slowly, then the <laughs> frog is going to die. So I think that's exactly what happened with many of these markets in the U.S. Um, when I came here in 1999 uh, as a student, so I was much more price conscious than I am now, um, I noticed that 
you know, plane tickets, um, access to internet, cell phone plans, of course, laptops, computers as well. All of that was a lot cheaper. And we're not talking about 5%, like 30, 40% cheaper in the US. Today is, is reversed. So big picture, what you brought up air travel, you brought up internet access, laptops. You wouldn't think that that is all the root of that price difference is all the same cause, but you're saying it, it, it is. To a large extent, yes. And what's interesting is also that the dynamics are started to, to be very different on both sides of the Atlantic. Essentially, what happened is um, at the time where, the, where Europe finally woke up to the fact that the U.S. approach to free market regulations, which was very much what the U.S. was doing in the 1990s, when Europe started to wake up to the fact that this was a good idea and started implementing that at home, therefore leading to lower prices, the U.S. was forgetting its own history, leading to higher prices. And so Europe started from, you know, a starting point of pretty, you know, not very competitive markets, but got better over time. The U.S. started the opposite, with pretty competitive market, got worse over time, and the changes accumulated over 20 years until today, where many of these markets, the situation is reversed compared to 20 years ago. So you know, you're saying the United States has poorly competitive markets and Europe has competitive markets? Yeah, in, in many of them. It's not true of every single industry. Retail actually is not true. But um, retail trade, wholesale trade, it's less true. But in these, in, I mean, just to give you an example, if you have, uh, if you buy internet broadband access, okay, on average in the US, the monthly price of broadband is $68 per month. The average price in France is 31. So we're not talking about, you know, it's 10% cheaper. It's less than half. In Germany, it's 35. Japan, it's 35. Korea, is 33. Uh, you know, you name it. Uh, they are all in the same ballpark, around 30, 35 dollars. The UK as well. And the US is at 68, okay? If you look at cell phone plants, it's the same thing. It's a ratio of one to two. Like you pay literally twice here for the same monthly cell phone plan that you would pay uh, in Europe or in Korea or Asia. How did that happen? So what happened is that in the U.S., the, they essentially stopped enforcing uh, pro-competition policies. And we tend to think of antitrust, mergers, because, of course, that's like the tip of the iceberg, the very visible outcomes. And that's true. That's part of the story. But it's much more widespread than that. It's a host of regulations that you know, prevent entry of new firms. Um, and in, in Europe, essentially, we did exactly the opposite. So my favorite example is the, the cell phones, because we had in France three legacy carriers. Okay? It was a classic oligopolistic market, and they all charge the same price. A bit like today, in, you know, if you're in New York and you have the choice between two plants, and one is, 17, one is 79.99, the other one is 79.99, so you're very happy to have a choice. <laughs> so it was the same kind of choice in France. You had three operators, and you had the choice between 45 euros in one and 44 euros in the other. And uh, it was very expensive, okay? And for a long time, a new entrant, uh, aptly named Free, Free Mobile, wanted to enter that market, was asking for a forced license to compete in that market. And of course, the incumbent lobbied extremely hard to prevent the regulators from giving the license to the new entrants. And finally, uh, they lost in 2011. And Free got its license, entered the market. And for the same contract that used to cost 45 euros, they entered at 20 euros. Okay? Within six months, the incumbents had to match the price. So they all went down to 20, 25 euros, which means essentially, even if you were not like a tech-savvy uh, consumer, just kept the same exact plan, did nothing, just sat on your coach, six months later, you were paying half. So that's competition. Uh, in that case, you see, it's not really antitrust. I mean, 
it's a regulatory decision. It's not antitrust. It's not a merger. So that's part of the equation. And in the U.S., you went into reverse by allowing too many mergers. And this is something we talk about all the time, this massive consolidation wave that has swept the basically every industry. Right now in the United States, there are four carriers, and Sprint and T-Mobile are on track to combine to form a third. But just based on that story alone, you would say, oh, this is going to lead to a bad outcome. Oh, there is no doubt. I mean, I think we are reaching the pinnacle of insanity here because you, you have, like, probably the most expensive Internet access for the country that pretty much invented the Internet. And, you know, again, 20 years ago, it was the opposite. So 20 years ago, the U.S. was a place where access to Internet was very cheap and very democratic. So now you have about the worst prices for access to Internet. You also have the worst prices for cell phones. And at the very same time where these facts are obvious, you're considering repealing net neutrality on the one hand and allowing allowing a 4 to 3 mergers among your cell phone providers, which is crazy, essentially. One of the conclusions in your book, I think you said it was a surprising conclusion, is that competition in free markets are actually quite fragile. They're very difficult to protect. Why do you think that this reversal has happened? Is it just we took our eye off the ball in the United States and we didn't realize that competition was helping consumers? Is it we got lazy? Is it the lobbyists did what they did very well? Like what, What drove this sense that everything should get consolidated and that at the same time, the people who most loudly proclaim the benefits of markets are going to end up proclaiming that consolidation is the way to go. Uh, and you know, it's a mix of honestly, if, if you look at it, I think it's a mix of uh, ideology, corruption. I mean, we, we say lobbying to be polite, but you know, it's basically corruption. Yeah, the T-Mobile executives all stayed in Trump's hotel during the merger process. So I think it's a mixture of ideology, corruption. And sometimes just more like incompetence. Like many people end up being the useful idiots of somebody else. And it's not really that they're dishonest. They just they don't understand what they're talking about and they end up making arguments that are serving somebody else. So I think it's a mixture of all of that. But uh, what, I, what I find very striking is that, and that's why, you know, maybe like a third of the book or a quarter of the book looks at Europe as a, as a comparison to the U.S. Because what's really interesting in Europe is that we didn't have any new ideas. You see, the, the, the way we set it up in Europe is we created this single market for goods and services. Because we did that, we wanted to have EU-level, European-level regulations. And when we did that, we looked around and said, okay, what, how are we going to design these regulations at the EU level? And of course, at that time, so that's like mid-1990s, obviously the benchmark was the U.S., so essentially what we took is we, we took the playbook from the U.S., we imported it in Europe. We didn't change it that much. So it's not like we had any brilliant new idea. We just essentially applied it. We did one <laughs> thing very smart and a complete, uh, like a forward fumble in, in, in football, you know, like it was like by chance. We made the regulators very independent, much more so than in the U.S., and that's very surprising first because you're like, why would you do that? In Europe, we don't have the tradition of independent regulators. Like politicians in Europe, they tend to, they like to play dominoes with industries, like the French especially. And so why did it at the EU level, they didn't do that? Well, we didn't because we didn't trust each other. See, the French and the Germans didn't trust each other and the Italians and the Spaniards. <laughs> and so therefore, in a world where you don't trust each other and yet you want to have a single market, then you're going to say, well, fine, I'm going to make the regulator very independent which means I won't get to influence the regulator, which I don't like, but I'm confident that nobody else will. And so because of this kind of strange outcome, we ended up with very independent regulators. And then that gives you a very nice natural experiment because we have a set of countries that are neither better nor worse than the U.S., using roughly the same technologies, consumers with the same tastes, 
Um, the same playbook, so no new idea, but one big difference, much more independent regulators. And you play the movie for 20 years, and essentially they resist lobbying and bad ideas much more than in the US. So we, have, we don't have the same issues, um, say, the revolving door issues for the FCC. I mean, that's really outrageous. That's yeah. a level of, that's really corruption. We don't really have that issue at the DigiComp in Europe. Um, the DOJ and the FTC are always worried that if they do something that's going to displease a big firm, then they're going to get beaten up by the senators or the congressmen. Again, we don't really have that issue in Europe because the regulators are relatively independent. And so I think over time, this independence make them just apply the playbook much more consistently than in the U.S. And that played out in many... Then we can talk specifically about airlines or telecom. But this is what happened. That's what's the common factor between all of these industries. So what's really interesting is that the European application of the United States playbook actually now has resulted in a different kind of policymaking, right? The European Union is very interested in preserving competition. The United States measures all competition in prices, and prices in some cases have gone down. But you're pointing out Prices have actually gone up. Oh, yeah. Surprisingly gone up. Why is it that where the United States regulators are blind to these obvious price increases or this obvious price discrepancy between us and Europe and Asia? Absolutely. So the thing is, again, this price. So first of all, regulators rarely, I mean, if you build an antitrust case in the U.S., you're just not going to use data from outside the U.S. That's just, that doesn't happen, essentially. So it's not surprising they're not even aware of it. I think most people who don't travel outside are not even aware that they are getting ripped off on their telecom, cell, cell, on their cell phone bills or their ISP bills. Um, it's only, you need to have some experience outside the, the U.S. to realize that prices are much lower in some other regions. So that's one factor. And then in some of these markets, the price increase happened very slowly over time. So just, just, I think it's important to have in mind like the benchmark number. So if you look at the past, say, since 2000, so roughly 20 years of data, roughly speaking, wages for the median worker went up by about 50, 55%, okay? That's the nominal increase in wages. Then prices for the typical baskets of goods went up by about 46%. So the real wage, the wage in addition of, to the inflation in prices went up by about a third of a percent per year. So that's a very tiny increase. Um, so when you have these discrepancies, my estimate is that the prices that people pay in the U.S. for um, the typical basket of goods and services that they buy is about 7% too high today, 7 or 8% too high compared to where it should be if competition had remained at its level of 2000. So that's a cumulative price increase of 7 to 8% for a very diffuse basket of goods over 20 years. So you see, year to year, you would barely notice the difference. But of course, when you accumulate, that means that your median household in the U.S. today pays about $300 per month too much. Now, for the median household, that's a lot of money. Like most people cannot, most households cannot cope with a 500 unexpected, uh, you know, expense. So they are paying extra 300 per month. So every household in the U.S., should get, at the end of the month, with $300 free in their pocket if the regulators had done their job properly. So that when you frame it that way, people start to understand what it means. So I think that's the issue. So what's interesting here is that I make this sort of argument a lot. Your book has far more data and is far more rigorous than me just yelling. So thank you. Now I can point to the book. And the answer I always get is, is twofold. One, let's take airlines, for example. Airline travel got cheaper. We deregulated the airlines, and now Spirit Airlines exists, and it's a horrible experience, but it's really cheap. And if you want a better experience, you can 
I don't know, switch to Delta and then pay for Delta Comfort Plus and then pay for first class and actually the first class cabin, they're getting more and more opulent because people want to pay for it. So that this pricing differential actually worked out. If you just want to go from A to B, you can buy very cheap. If you want the good experience, you can pay a lot more money. The second one I always get is, well, look over there. Like All the best internet companies are in America. Google and Facebook and Apple and Microsoft are great companies. We should just leave them alone because they, they make obviously better products and they, they, they're going to respond to their customers because, well, they say they are. How do you respond to those two critiques of there's actually plenty of competition because there's all these choices you have? No, these are absolutely uh, critical. Um, so, they, But they, they are very separate. So let's talk about the airlines first. So first of all, um, airline prices um, are much, airlines make a lot more money per passenger mile today than they did 20 years ago. And the main reason is because you went from eight to four. You, are, you used to have eight major or significant airlines in the US when I came in 20 years ago. And today you have four left. Okay, there are the top four control 85% of the market. And that's another perfect example. It's, and it's very ironic because um, Southwest essentially you know, invented the successful model of low cost airline. And today, of course, Southwest is not a low-cost airline, it's just like a regular airline. And in Europe, we do have low-cost airlines, and they are much more successful and aggressive than here. So we have EasyJet and Ryanair, and these are the guys going, you know, pushing the prices down in, uh, in Europe, which is why the legacy carriers have had to create their own brands of low-cost, which is why the profit they are making is much lower, and people pay much less for plane tickets in Europe today than in the U.S., um, so I think that's that's kind of the perfect example. Um, so many of these markets don't actually have much competition. And again, like so, airlines—it's four major airlines for the for the U.S. But of course, many people live in cities where there is one, maybe two, if they are lucky. So many people don't even have you know really a, a real choice. Uh, so I think that's the big issue. Same thing with ISPs, by the way. So on average in the U.S the average household has one and a half ISPs to choose from. That means half of the population has one <laughs> and the other one has two. Okay, So if you live in New York, you have like Time Warner and then Verizon, and that's it. And by the way, since it's charged the same price anyway, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the median household in France has five ISPs to choose from. So that's a lot more choices, a lot more competition. I don't think it's that surprising then that prices are higher here. Uh, the real question is, why is it that you let it happen? I think that's because of lobbying, mostly, uh, and bad regulation. And then the, what to do then, we can discuss later. Now, the internet firms, that's a very different story. Um, I think there you need to, though first of all, it's oftentimes people mix up everything and say, oh, you know, like Europe, big, the reason Europe doesn't have, it's, that's, that's a story that mostly the Europeans use. They said the, the reason we don't have our own Google or Facebook is because our antitrust policy is too strict which is, of course, the most bogus claim in the history of claims. Why is that? Because there's absolutely never any antitrust action in the history of Europe that was, <laughs> that, that was targeting anything that could have become Google or Facebook. Yeah. Um, so they didn't stop any Google and Facebook to be create, from being created. The reason we don't have Google and Facebook in Europe is because our universities are way behind the U.S., so we don't have the same ecosystem that created Google, Apple, Facebook, um, which is literally this nexus between venture capital and universities. So that we don't have. That's clearly something the U.S. has that nobody else has at the same level. And the second thing we don't have, we don't have a single market where these companies could grow immediately EU-wide. 
See, we have 18 languages and 18 stupid regulations. So if you are, if you are in the B2C business, the C part of the equation, the consumer regulation to sell your product are going to be all different across the EU. So if you're a small firm, it's very costly. And so they tend to remain national. And when, if they remain national, they, they remain too small. Um, so I th that's changing, by the way. Spotify being one example, but yeah. there are many others today that are growing in Europe. So I think it's going to change. But clearly, that's the reason we don't have Google. That has nothing to do with antitrust enforcement. And in the US, of course, that's the thing that's fantastic is that you have these companies, but they were all created 10 or 15 years ago. Since then, nothing has happened. So that's the issue. So that's the issue. So in your book, you talk about you know, what to do of Facebook, what to do of Google. Um, you call them the GAFAMs, Google, Apple, Facebook, yeah, that's, Amazon, I know. Microsoft. Here, it's funny, the acronyms here, you have the FANGs because yeah. you put Netflix. And I, I think they picked that because it sounds cool. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, because, I, because at some point it was, I think also because when they came with this idea, like Microsoft was a bit like, ah, you know, not so exciting, which is crazy. It's a, an amazing company and they are more successful now than many of the other ones. So I think the aim of Microsoft clearly belongs there. So GAFAM is what you call them. And you have this uh, point, which is we think of them as giants, historical giants. And you're saying actually in the context of history, they're quite small. Yeah, so that's, that's the part of being an economist or an academic, which is always the easiest one, which is you can be sure of one thing. People always, in the, always overestimate how much new is going on today compared to what was happening in the past. That, that's a human bias that's been true forever. So you can pretty sure that every time somebody claims something is new or you know, um, unprecedented, there's a 95% chance that's not true. <laughs> so it's not one I mean, it, you can't be fully sure, but it's a pretty good bet. And in that case, of course, I said, oh, you know what? Maybe I should check whether that's true or not, that these firms are really much larger and unprecedented by their size and scope and value. And lo and behold, I found that was essentially BS. So both in terms of profit margins, in terms of sales and revenues, market value of equity, uh, productivity, productivity growth, in all of these metrics, they are very similar to the stars of the past. The mistake people make is there have always been amazing firms and the top five firms are self-selected to be the best of a generation. So if you look at the book, I just do it decade by decade. I give you the breakdown of the top, the star firms of each decade since 1950. And of course, every one of these is amazing. And at some point, the names change. So General Motors was there only on and of course, GE and IBM and AT&T. And as you move forward, the names change. Interestingly, the only one that's remained in the top 10 throughout the century is ExxonMobil. <laughs> of course. That tells you something about what's really <laughs> constant. <laughs> um, but otherwise, like the profit margin of Google today is the same as the profit margin of IBM in the 70s and AT&T in the 60s uh, in terms of their um, ratio of stock market valuation, which is another metric people. Oh, you know, Apple is a trillion dollar company. Amazing. Well, actually it's not. When Apple was a trillion dollar company, it was 2.5% of the stock market, which is actually less than what AT&T at its peak was 4.5% of the stock market. So if you just scale by the right number, which is how much of the total value it is, then it's not that different. And it's even strikingly constant. So the top five firms ranked by market value, they've been 10% of the total value of the market. They've been 10% since 1980. So in 1980, the top five firms was 10% of the market. 1990, the same, 2000, 2000, and today, the top five firms, which happen to be the GAFAMs, are exactly 10% of the market. So in that sense, they are not new. And the, what's important here to understand is it has two implications, at least in my mind. One is you shouldn't think of them as being exceptional 
in the sense that, oh, if we break them up, it's the end of the world. I think that's, that's not true. They are just great f- firms, but there were so many great firms in the past, and you still treat them as normal companies. That's point one. And point two, if you dig a bit deeper, I think they are actually, um, their impact on the economy is smaller than their, their grandparents. And the reason is because many of them are much less integrated in the, um, in the ecosystem. So think about, I think maybe like GM would be like a big industrial company. Imagine, you can imagine GM, GE. Imagine that this firm at its, you know, in, when it was at its prime, um, do the thought experiment. Imagine that they, they become overnight twice more productive. Think of what it would do to the economy. I think it's pretty obvious that if you imagine GM doubling its productivity overnight in 1950, you would see it in the GDP number, like right away. Why? Because, of course, they would become more productive, but the entire supply chain would become more productive by the same account. They would just multiplicatively move everybody up. So GM, you're saying, in 1950, if they <clears throat> ship twice as many cars, yeah, they've got to order twice as many seats, they've got to build twice as many engines, they've got to have twice as many marketing people and dealerships and what have you. Yeah. And you would, you would, so you would see the ripple effect of exactly. their output yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And we have a way of measuring that, which is you can look at the – a simple metric is how much do they buy from other producers? And that's something we have. Uh, that's they, we have data on that. You can see how much actual um, economic services, goods and services, do they source from other producers in the economy. And that's a metric of their impact on the economy. And by that metric, the only one uh, today which is comparable to the giants of the past is Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I think it fits the narrative. I mean, if you imagine today you wake up and Amazon is twice as productive as it used to be, I think you would see the GDP number going up. I have no doubt about that. But if you imagine tomorrow that you wake up and Facebook is twice as productive, I think GDP doesn't move. It's like a terrifying idea. Yeah, maybe. But I can (laughs) tell you one thing is GDP wouldn't move. Right. Because the best case, you would have more targeted ads, but nobody's going to get more productive because of that. So in that sense, I don't think they are even as good as the giants of the past. So isn't this intrinsic to particularly Google and Facebook being software companies, right? They, I think you, in the book, you refer to them as reclusive, right? They... They, the defining feature of the new stars, this is a quote from your book, the defining feature of the new stars is how few people they employ and how little they buy from other firms. So isn't that just the nature of the, a software business of this scale, right? The marginal cost of every ad Google serves is zero. The marginal cost of every Instagram post for Facebook is zero. And they can hire more coders to make that more efficient, make the ads more expensive, what have you. But their, their sort of unit cost is always fixed at zero. Yeah, but I think the key word is the one you just mentioned, which is the ad. I don't think it's specific to software. I think it's specific to the ad market, which is these guys are just giant ad businesses. You know, they are the madmen of today. That's what they are. So if you improve the efficiency of the advertisement industry, you're just not going to move the needle very much. See, I wouldn't say the same thing about the cloud, for instance. And so cloud, of course, there's some hardware, but there's a lot of software. And I think this has a massive impact on productivity. Like the fact that, you know, now, if you start a business, you don't essentially need to buy anything. You don't, certainly don't need to buy your own server. You can put everything in the cloud. That's a big improvement in productivity for everybody else. So I think that the, the reason these firms uh, have a lower impact on productivity is not so much that they are in the software business. I think it's because they are in the advertisement business. That's the issue. So you're saying if uh, Amazon made AWS twice as efficient, you would see a GDP oh, yeah. number increase. Well, it would make uh, the cost of running a new business for everybody else much cheaper as a start. And then, no, I think it would have an impact. Or imagine Google. Imagine that Google stopped getting its revenues from, imagine Google was really serious about having efficient driverless cars, and it worked. 
unfortunately, I don't think. <laughs> it's a big question. No, but ima- you, you can do, yeah. I don't think it's going to happen, but let's do that thought experiment. Well, you don't think it's going to happen? I'm just curious. I think they are much further back from having real yeah. serious I have a lot of it. self-driving car CEOs on the show, and I say, is it going to happen? They say yes, and I say when, and they're, nah. Yeah, exactly. I have the same experience. I think it's going to happen for bus lines, but for real cars, I think I'm still waiting. Um, but anyway, but we can still do the, run the start experiment. Imagine Google really had a very efficient way of having safe driving cars. Imagine that business became a lot more productive. I think that would have a really big impact on the economy. But that's still a hardware business. No, but the, the, most of the driverless cars is how you treat the information. So I think the value added is mostly the software, like how you process the information. I think the camera is a cheap part of it. It's how you process the information, which is tricky, how you replicate the human brain. And if they could do that, I think that would have a big impact. So I'd, again, but that would be that's the reason it would have a big impact because that's not advertising. That's yeah. real. So a company like Apple, which obviously has a huge supply chain, it's mostly in China, but it's globalized. If they somehow were able to ship even more iPhones at a cheaper price, that would have some impact on the GDP. Oh, it would, of course. The only thing is because it's Apple, both of some of the productivity gains would show outside the US. But in the, in the global sense, it would, yes. Do you think Apple is as reclusive as these other firms that you're describing? No. I mean, the tradition, there, is a, there is clearly an engineering tradition at Apple, which is very similar to other engineering firms. So it's kind of halfway, I would say. Well, the reason I ask is when I think of competition in the phone market, I often think of switching costs between mm-hmm. the platforms. Yeah. So it's very difficult to switch from Apple to Samsung for the, the reason alone that you lose your messaging service. You lose iMessage along the way. Yeah. And people literally do not want green bubbles. They want to be blue bubbles. Yeah. Is that the sort of place where an EU regulator using the sort of old US playbook looks and says, hey, that, that's actually a huge anti-competitive issue? Or is that the place where, a, I don't know, a newly revived United States regulator would come and say, hey, this actually needs to be interoperable because we want to lower these switching costs? Or is that fair play to Apple? Well, I think um, conceptually, I don't see why that's very, very different from in the old days when you had the beginning of the telephone industry and the initial uh, companies running telephone services didn't have, didn't really want their phones to interoperate. They didn't really, they wanted you, if you're on my network, you can call people uh, in my network, you cannot call people in the other network. I think that was their natural tendency. We had to force them to do, to have one network where if you have a phone at home, you can call anybody else in the country. That was not the market outcome. That was forced by regulation. I think the text messaging, to some extent, it looks very similar to me. It's just that maybe it's less important, so people have been you know, paying less attention to it. But I don't think that. I think it's, at some point we're going to require that you know, there should be some interoperability of these systems. But there is, for standard text messages, there is. There is, yeah. But, but very few people are using that now. So. Well, because they have iMessage. I mean, I think this gets oh, to... Oh, WhatsApp. No, they could, everybody could be using WhatsApp. I think if WhatsApp was independent from Facebook, that would be another thing. They would definitely then push that uh, much more. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it just, to me, it gets to this very difficult problem of, okay, we know Facebook bought WhatsApp and Instagram. It was probably a mistake to allow that to happen. Maybe we'll unwind it now. But you look at a company like Slack... And their competitor is actually Microsoft, which is going to build teams and give it away for free. How do you say that's anti-competitive behavior? Because at some point, you can't tell Microsoft to stop doing things. No. Right? At some point, you can't say that's predatory pricing. They're just charging you. They're giving you more for the same amount of money. That seems like a very difficult line to say this is actually anti-competitive to Slack. I agree. But the fact that it's very difficult is not new. Every, If you look at every single case of um, big antitrust case in the U.S. or even abroad, it's never easy. 
Like the idea that somehow the, the old cases were obvious. Well, they are only obvious in retrospect. If you read what people were saying in real time, they always thought, oh, but it's not obvious. Is that really <laughs> on And it, ha- it can't be. If it was obvious, it wouldn't happen. So, you know, what's the, li- what's the difference between Microsoft today giving it away, this messaging you were saying about? Uh, what's the difference between Microsoft doing it for free today compared to, you know, the, the lawsuit they had in the late 90s because they forced people to use Internet Explorer by tying it to their operating software? I mean, is that different? They were giving Explorer for free to beat up Netscape. So, like, what's the line? Which we, I think it's not obvious. It's never going to be obvious. But then I think that's a very important point, though, uh, which is I talk about at the end in the book. And the, the WhatsApp case is, is a good case. It's, not, it's never obvious in real time. But then the question you need to ask yourself is, one, what's the cost of what we call in statistic type 1 versus type 2 errors? And two, you need to allow the government to make mistakes. I think these are two core principles. So the first one is, Type 1, type 2 error. Type 1 error is like you put the wrong person in jail. Type 2 error is you let somebody who is guilty work for free. Okay, so in the case of a merger, you could say, you could make the mistake by allowing a merger, but really you should have blocked it. Or you block a merger, but you really should have allowed it. Okay? And the, one of the mistakes that came out from, that's a long history if we go down, I mean, it's part of the Chicago school issue in antitrust. Which they started to treat this type 1, type 2 error symmetrically. And in the case of mergers, it makes no sense. I mean, if you block a merger, which you should have allowed, they, come, they can come back two years later and ask for it again. What's the big deal? You lost two years. You know, it's not like, that's not the end of the world. <laughs> if you allow a merger that should not have happened, then it's extremely hard to reverse. I mean, even in your best case scenario, suppose we elect somebody, uh, both president and Congress, who really wants to do something about the Facebook-WhatsApp merger. How long, in, in your best case scenario, how long does it take? 10 years. Yeah, agree. So you see, that's completely asymmetric. So in your world where this, the cost of the mistake is completely asymmetric, you should have some principle where the burden of the proof should be higher on one side. So if you don't know, you should be able to say, well, no, not now, or you wait, or whatever. But the problem is that this, this assumes that people are going to be willing to, you know, let the government try something, and sometime it's going to be a mistake. And yes, government officials can make mistakes, and that's okay. And the, one of the issues in the U.S. is you've moved into a world in which somehow any government mistake, the guy is going to be pilloried. And that's not a good outcome because then they don't enforce anything. Or if you can't believe in a situation where the only cases that are going to be tried is the one where the DOJ or the FTC is sure to win because that surely is too little. I mean, I think we just saw this with the big Facebook fine yeah. where the FTC, the biggest fine in their history, doesn't seem big enough. Right, $5 billion. But the reason they didn't go and actually try to win in court was they were unsure that they could actually defeat Facebook for a very clear record of, of wrongdoing. Yep. And that seems to be track exactly with what you're saying is that our, regulator, our regulators are, are basically too afraid to try because if they get it wrong, they're, they're done. Yeah, but I think that's a bad outcome. And maybe they need to explain better what they do. I'm not saying that it's, they are blameless, but they need to be able to try. And they need to be encouraged to try. And so that's why you need politicians to tell them to try. And instead, what you have over the past 20 years is politicians who get campaign donations from big firms <laughs> who therefore are convinced that they should tell the regulator to try less, not to try more. I think that's so, the issue. But that's a... I want to come back to the core idea of, of your book, which is that we've, in America, we have walked away from markets. We didn't even know it was happening. We're the frog that was boiled. Now the free market is effectively neutered. Our level of competition is very low, and that's bad for consumers. Yeah. First of all, I mean, you've written a book to convince people of that. You've, you've convinced me. We're on the show trying to convince people of that, potentially. But how do you convince the broader public that, hey, our sort of industrial and economic policy is actually anti-free market? We've actually let 
this thing that we cherish and hold up as an American value. We've let it go. How do you even make that case more broadly to people that think that that's what America stands for? And then how do you fix it? Oh, so I have this very naive view of... I mean, I think I'm, I'm part of the dying breed of people who still believe in bipartisan and objective yes. analysis. So the book... It's amazing. You, every should, time I write... should take the, a photo of Thomas so that I we know. can preserve I'm like a dinosaur, like. you know, like... <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to disappear soon. <laughs> no, so the book gives you... Every time I say something, I give you both sides of the ag- uh, argument. I say, you know, people disagree because they argue X. I think it's Y, and this is the data. And based on the data, I conclude that it's more Y than X. And... Many of these cases are not obvious. So, in fact, I start the, the book by examples where concentration is a good sign. And there are plenty of examples of that. Like, we have plenty of amazing analysis by economic um, historians or by people in uh, what we call industrial organizations who study this market of cases where more competition leads to more concentration. Okay? And if you think about it, it's pretty obvious. The f- if you have a very highly competitive market, then if you're not very good, you can't survive. Well, Mechanically, that means that if you, have, if you take a market, you make it more competitive, you're going to weed out the weaker firms. Therefore, the level of concentration is going to be mechanically higher. Okay, so there is a very clear case that in many cases, more competition leads to more concentration. And so when you see more concentration, you should not think, you should not jump to the conclusion it's bad. Okay, you need, if you want to argue that it's bad, like I do in, in, the, in the book, you need to be very clear about exactly why the concentration is happening. And so that's, that's why you need a lot of work to convince people. And, and, the, and the other thing you need to do is recognize that it's not true everywhere. There are industries today that are very competitive. And uh, like the wholesale industry, wholesale trade, even retail trade, to be honest, uh, I think it's still very competitive. I mean, big firms are going out of business in retail every day. So that this is a competitive landscape. Wait, I read this part in the book, and I actually I really wanted to explain it. So you're saying retail is very competitive. Obviously, Walmart and Amazon exist. We know they're very competitive. But you're saying Sears going out of business is a sign of competition. I think most people would say that's actually quite bad. There are fewer firms competing now. Why is a company going out of business a sign of competition? Because the reason they went out of business is because prices were low and they couldn't compete. See, if, if the prices had been high, they would have just made money and they could have stayed in business. So usually when we see firms exiting, or take the airlines in Europe. Like in France today, we have too many airlines. Just two went bust recently. Because we reached a point where there was so much competition, prices are so low, margins are so tight that they just can't continue and they go bust. But that's not a bad sign. It means the market is working efficiently. I mean, like the margin in any efficient competitive economy, the marginal firm should be on the verge of bankruptcy. It's almost (laughs) that's almost a definition of efficiency because if it's too comfortable, that means the prices are too high. It's as simple as that. So I think concentration is not always a bad thing. And I give examples where concentration is good. It's just that on balance, over the past 20 years, um, you can have, I think the best way is to have a dichotomy. There's good concentration and bad concentration. And good concentration is the one that comes together with productivity growth, investment, and innovation. And we've seen plenty of that. And the bad concentration is the one that comes with heavy lobbying, regulations to prevent entry, uh, and then anti-competitive behavior by dominant firms. Okay? And both of them have always existed throughout history. And it, the question is only at any point in time, do we see more of the type one, the good type, or the type two, the bad type? What I'm showing in the book is that throughout the 80s and 90s, we saw mostly type one, the good type of concentration. And since 2000, we've seen more of the bad type to the point that today, more than half of the consortium that's happening, if you want, is of the bad type. I think that's my claim. I'm not claiming that it's bad everywhere. 
Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So one thing I want to talk about with software companies in particular, and you get into it in the book, is that it is very easy to enter the market to compete with Facebook. But it is very hard to actually compete with Facebook because of the network effect, right? Everybody's using Facebook, getting them all to switch and use my less privacy-invasive Facebook is very difficult, right? The, the cost of every new user is actually really, really high at the beginning. We're actually seeing this with TikTok right now. TikTok user acquisition funnel is buying ads on Facebook, which is absurd. Is that does that make this different in kind that because Facebook has this massive entrenched network of users and it's very hard to spin up a competitor because you don't have their asset and rightfully so it's the, it's their user base but you can't peel off an entire user base and offer them a superior product does that make this argument different it it makes it different quantitatively but I don't think it's not a difference of kind because network effects you know. They are just one particular form of what we call increasing returns, which is the bigger you get, the more efficient you get. That is something that is prevalent in many industries. Um, most industries were, was R&D is a big part of your cost. You're going to have these effects. So uh, in, the, in the telecom business, you, you already had this network effect. They've existed for a long time, and we've dealt with them. Like, you know, when AT&T was the dominant and the Bell system, that was one giant network, and nobody could enter. So it's not as if I think these are not new and we don't necessarily, that's why I disagree with some of the more extreme proposition in the US. I don't think we need radically new tools to do it. I think we have mostly the tools. We just need to apply them a bit more aggressively and creatively. So that's why I would, I would put the, the distance. In other words, suppose that the regulator had really looked twice at the Instagram or WhatsApp acquisition by Facebook. Maybe that would have been enough to create competition in that market. We'll never know, but it's, maybe that would be enough. So I would I would try to run that experiment first, which is let you know make sure they can't buy too many competitors or nascent competitors. Maybe is that enough to break the um, the network effect? Because there are plenty of ecosystems that, like Google and Apple, actually in terms of 
two ecosystems that are not really compatible or not very well compatible, they still coexist and both have network effects. It's just that you have you have differentiation against uh, according to different dimensions. You could imagine a Facebook competitor which would be better on privacy, you know, and that would coexist. It would have the network effect would not kill that, but they need to have a chance to to exist. That's the thing. Because in the book, you bring up the idea that we should have data portability and some interoperability standards. Oh yeah, which seem like how you would directly tackle a regulation that dismantles some of the moat that the network effect. Completely. But these are old ideas. These are not new ideas. They've been applied to the telecom industry for a long time, this idea of interoperability and portability of, I mean, that came with the, the fact that you can, you can portability of your phone number when you switch. I mean, that's something the, the industry fought against. <laughs> you know, so this idea is not new. And I think if we apply it to, I don't, so the bottom line is, I think it's a matter of trying and being a bit creative and aggressive and pushy. So we need like regulators and politicians who are willing to push for that. I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel. How do you begin? I mean, that, that seems like the hard problem here. I think we are always at the verge screaming about net neutrality and ISP prices. It doesn't seem to translate that much into action. We're going to keep screaming, I assure you. But how do you begin to say our competition policy needs XYZ changes? What are the first steps? Well, my first step would be, um, and that may be a bit self-serving, but my first step would be to make sure people are aware that they pay too much. Like, they just, they just don't know. And so I think that's kind of put the number on the table, just explain that this is not small potatoes. You're paying too much. If you say that, people listen. That's my, that's my experience, at least. And by, by that, I don't mean just like, you know, um, fancy New Yorkers. I mean, everywhere. Yeah. Tell them you're paying too much, people listen. So that's step number one. Step number two, try, I mean, you, you need to be a bit opportunistic. So I think that if there is agreement to do something about some particular firm, then go for it, which in this case is going to be the big tech. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Facebook. What I'm getting at, I think, is, is this the moment where you say we're going to break up Facebook. Well, I don't know if you're going to manage to break. I don't even know for sure that's the right solution, but you should try. I mean, I can't do anything. Yeah. I can, I can just say that we should. But I mean, but is this the moment where the United States should actually take that up? Oh, yeah, for sure. There is no, there is no question that you should try to do that as a country because you, it might not be the right solution. It might not work, but it's definitely worth trying because it's going to at least you know, set the stage for real debate and real action. And also, to be honest, the reason we are, that uh, we are going after Facebook today is because that's the only thing the right and the left can agree on. It's not because Facebook is the one that's really, um, you know, taking the most money out of people's pocket. Um, that's just not true. I mean, they are, they are, they are, <laughs> they are but it's not that much. And yeah. so, uh, and they are the privacy issue, of course. That's another one. But it's a target of opportunity. If you look at these uh, 50 uh, AGs who signed, uh, who just are on board to go, the reason they go after Facebook and Google it's not because of Facebook and Google. It's because that's the only thing they can agree on. Like, they, they wouldn't agree on anything else. Yeah. And so, but fine, so be it. So that's a, the way to start. But if you, if you go that way, then you need to be honest about it. Even if you break up Facebook, you are not going to uh, bring back, you're not going to put real money, real disposable income in people's pocket because you have to go through the chain. So what's the best case scenario? You do something against, uh, again, privacy is different. We're just talking about economics here. So, you make the market for online advertising more competitive. So Google and Facebook have real competition. Maybe you bring in some new guys, you force them to share their data, you do X, Y, Z. Um, you make this, mo this market more competitive. So there's more competition in online advertising. So the price of online advertising falls. Who benefits? Well, it's not directly the consumer, certainly. It's the firms who are advertising. So then their profit margin goes up. And then you have to hope that somehow they're going to pass that on as lower prices 
But that's a very indirect chain. And if these guys themselves are not in a very competitive industry, they will not pass on the savings. <laughs> so all you would have done is you would have taken some margin from Facebook and you would have transferred them to people who advertise online. Okay, that's not directly going to help the consumer. So I think it's a good starting point. Um, and also politically, it's very important uh, because from sometimes Facebook is used as an excuse by other businesses who want to protect their own monopoly rents. You know, they say, oh, you can't do that to us because look at Facebook and Google are so dominant and we need to compete with them. So don't do anything to us. So as if you do something to Facebook, you take that argument off the table and it's good for everyone. But you shouldn't stop there. If you just stop there, then you would have done essentially very little. If, you, if you're serious about antitrust, you need to talk about transportation, you need to talk about telecoms, and you need to talk about healthcare because that's where the big margins are. And that's where the, you know, the thing that really hurt people in terms of their disposable income, that's where the money is. So what do you think, what do you make of the AT&T Time Warner merger, right? This is consolidation of a different kind. Obviously, the Justice Department tried to stop it. I think the Trump administration hilariously was not able to make the net neutrality argument. That seems very obvious because they oppose net neutrality, but yet they tried to stop it. That doesn't seem like the kind of consolidation you're describing, but it still seems in the end, we're all going to end up paying more for AT&T so it can subsidize HBO or, or what have you. Yeah. So that, that's, that one is... Um is one of these cases where I think it's not totally obvious what the right answer was. It's not, I think, the like the four to three merger in in the in the mobile phone business. That's a no-brainer. The AT&T Time Warner. I don't know if it's a good idea, but what I know for sure is the way it was handled is a disaster. Really? Yeah, because the one thing you don't want in antitrust is politics. I mean, the the it has to be rule of law rules of the game, and you have independent regulator apply the rules. And they, and they go and they apply the rules based on the criteria, which is you do whatever is best for the consumers in the long run. And here you had exactly this bizarre situation where it looks like the White House wanted to kill the deal because they didn't like one of the participants. And at the other hand, the, the, the obvious reason or the, the obvious reasoning for killing the deal would have been to appeal to net neutrality. But since they're also against that, they couldn't say anything. <laughs> but that's exactly the point. You see, that's why if you bring short-term protocol considerations in the regulation of antitrust or the economy in general, you're going to have a disaster. So the, the, it's not. It's a bad process. To me, the, the, this one was a clear example of a bad process. This is what, and that's surprisingly, that's what we do well in Europe now, which is everything. It's not as if Vestager at the Digicom makes no mistake. She makes mistakes. She's a human. She's amazing, but she's a human being. She makes mistakes. But it's the rule of law. It, there are rules, and we apply the rules. And that's that's just a big relief because you don't have to think. Okay, did she do that because of political pressure? No, she applied the rules, and that's you know that makes the debate a lot more rational. It's just better. So one of the big questions here is whether we have the right rules. So we, we had Lena Khan uh, on the broadcast earlier this year. She's she's in your book. You mentioned of course, her. She, yeah. I think she's at the FTC now. Yeah. But she wrote a very uh, influential paper called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. She wrote a couple of very influential papers, yes. She's also amazing. Um, but you know her argument is we – and you, you mentioned the Chicago school earlier. And I feel very guilty because I went to the University of Chicago. So I'd, I had a great university in some way. You know? That's but they, we we broke it. We, we like we broke America along the way. But the Chicago School is the consumer welfare standard, which is what Lena wrote about. It like basically doesn't apply to Amazon. So right now in the United States, we say if prices will go up, we should block this merger. And actually, the AT and T Time Warner argument was pages and pages of technical reasoning about why like cable TV rates would go up fifty cents or something. 
It was absolutely, it was unreadable. It's hundreds of pages along of unreadable. And the judge said, I don't believe you. And there's no way to argue that point. There's a lot of action around, hey, we should change the consumer welfare standard. We should find a new standard that actually measures competition directly so that a company like Google, which gives all its products away for free, can't just doesn't escape all scrutiny. Do you think we should change that standard? So first of all, I think it's a debate that's absolutely central. And I, we should all be very grateful to Lina Khan for bringing it up because it's a debate that needs to happen. On that specific issue, I am that I have some disagreement with that. I don't actually think we need to change the consumer welfare standard for a couple of reasons. Or at least we have to be precise what we mean. I think there are two issues. You have politics and economics. Where, what I, where I agree with uh, what we like Lena Khan writes is when she writes about power. And she says that if you look at the, the history of antitrust, then part of the deep root, the, like the DNA of, the, of this movement, was mistrust of concentrated corporate power, but mostly for political reasons. So if that's the argument, I agree. Okay. But it's not specifically about antitrust. An argument for saying we should avoid massive concentration because it comes together with too much political power, then I agree with that. Okay. But I don't think that's very much connected to the debate about the consumer welfare standard. That's a, that's a much broader theme. And on that one, I agree. We need to be, we need to be watchful of concentrated political power in any hand. And whether it's corporate or just rich people, I think that's an issue. But if you literally just look at the, the way we should apply the consumer welfare st- or the antitrust, I think consumer welfare is the right thing. So I agree with the Chicago school there. That's the right target. What I disagree is that I don't think they were honest about the way to get there, which is consumer welfare is depends on prices and choices, and not today, but today and for many days to come. So the right... I mean, conceptually, the consumer welfare says you, sh- you want to make sure that consumers' welfare goes up over the long run. So therefore, short-term price changes is just one input, but it's not necessarily the most important. And that standard is per- perfectly consistent with saying that choice is important, innovation is important. And if you can show that too much market power today, even though it might not show up as high prices, is going to lead to fewer choices, less innovation, then you can apply the consumer welfare standard to go after these guys. So I don't think that's an issue. And to go back to the Chicago school, because I think that's also a super interesting debate. So it's a bit geeky, but that's basically... What we're here for. Yeah. Go for it. So, like, the one, I'm going to try to summarize it so that it's, it's easy to understand. The basic argument of the Chicago School in the 50s, 60s, and then more, later on, in the, more importantly, in the 70s, was, look, you don't need to worry about monopoly power. And the reason is because if there is excessive profit, it's going to attract new entrants. And these entrants are going to come in the market and compete away the excessive profits. So therefore, the Chicago will say, look, you need to enforce very strict, uh, strict rules about you know, cartels, price fixing, for sure. That's, you should be very tough about that. But you don't need to worry about one firm dominating a market excessively, because if they make too much money, they're going to attract entrants. Okay? So that was the main argument. And the big issue with that argument, if you look at the data, so you have the, the data in the book. That argument was roughly right when they made it. So in the 70s and the 80s, it was true that if you look at the, the whole landscape of corporations in the U.S., in places where profits were very high, you could predict much higher entry rates over the following years. And these entrants would compete away the profits. It did happen. It worked like that. So it was true. The problem is today, if you do the same exact calculation, that rebalancing mechanism has disappeared. The correlation between entry and excess profit has become zero. So in that world where entry is not there anymore to rebalance um, you know, excess profits, then the Chicago school argument that you don't need to worry about market power falls apart. Why isn't there entry anymore? 
Well, that's, I think, because what we see today is the reason. See, it's very much linked to this good concentration, bad concentration, sorry. If you believe it's good concentration, then entry should rebalance the, the, the economy. If you believe that it's the bad concentration story, which is the reason you see concentration, is not that the top dogs have become so efficient that they take away some market shares. If you believe that the concentration instead is driven by the top dogs manage to, to put barriers around its market, then you don't expect entry to rebalance anything. Because in fact, the reason they are making money is not that they become more efficient, is they become more insulated from the rest. So that's, I think, is a telltale sign that that's the buyers to entry is driving the stuff. That's so there, there are a couple of companies I want to make sure we talk about in these last few minutes. One is Amazon, and you reach some surprising conclusions about Amazon in the book, which is that they are a whole, they are a different kind than the Google and Facebook and Apple of the world, and that they are far more integrated into the economy, they're spending money, they are in a much more competitive environment. That is surprising. I think when people think about giant, powerful American monopolies right now, Amazon sits at the top of the list. Why do you, what did your data show you that suggests it's actually different? So if you look at, um, well, there are many dimensions in which Amazon is very different from the other companies. First of all, like the median wage at, fa- at Facebook is $230,000, the median wage, right, per year. So the median employee of Facebook earns 230 or maybe 240, some, something like that per year. The median employee at Amazon earns 46, okay, so to start with. So, <laughs> because they have warehouse workers. Well, because they have, like, they have a whole cross-section of people. Like, the, 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 the employees of Amazon are much more representative of the entire U.S. population than the employee of some of these other firms. So that's one difference. But more importantly, if you look at just what they do, um, they just do a lot of capital expenditure, a lot of investment, uh, and a lot of productivity growth, which at the end of the day is what you want. Now, yeah, they do have monopoly power in some markets, but overall, they are still operating in a fairly competitive system, I think. I don't think Walmart is that far behind. If you just look at the retail, the thing that's Amazon, so, so because of that, I think they are just, you might say they have too much. I do believe they do have market power. I would like to have some action against their you know, ability to do copycat and to use their data. I think that we should investigate, absolutely. But this is where they see what products are selling well on Amazon. They copy it and they put exactly, it at the top of their own Exactly. So that's yeah. an issue. To be honest, CVS and all the retail guys have been doing that forever, obviously. Yeah. But they, Amazon can do it at scale. And so there is a case there to tell them, okay, you know, to just slap them a bit on that. I'm fine with that. But and the big picture is they do contribute to growth. I mean, they hire people, they invest, and they push the economy forward. So at the very least, they are doing that right. So I think we should, they, should, they, get, they get credit for that in my book. And then um, the other part of Amazon is the, uh, if you break down the profits between the retail part and the, uh, you know, the cloud, AWS, a lot of the profits coming from AWS. And I don't think you can, and at least I haven't heard people saying that the, the cloud uh, landscape is not very competitive. I think that at least until now, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, they are competing fairly aggressively in that space. So I think both in the retail and the cloud, I see a system where, you know, there's some competition. I think Baidu is on that list too, if you look outside. Yes, you, also, absolutely. Yeah. It's like a, a fourth big competitor that someone pointed out to me is actually nipping on all of them. I want to ask about Disney, which is just seems to be sucking in all the oxygen. We're recording uh, on a week when Martin Scorsese literally wrote an essay in the Times about how Marvel movies are bad, which seemed to me to be an essay literally about Disney's market power as opposed to anything else, because this is what Disney wants to make. Do you think that is a company that has achieved dangerous scale? Yeah, but the, the, the arts and 
that I, it's, I think it's very hard to analyze. I don't have any specific insight on that one. On movies, though, I'm a movie geek, and I tend to agree with Scorsese, but on purely artistic grounds. Well, you're, you're also French. Yeah, I think I think superhero movies are kind of <laughs> dumb. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> no. Most of them, I mean, some are like Black Panther was great, but it's like one in a very, very long list of movies that I find pretty dumb. So I, on that one, I agree with Scorsese, but it's not economics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's just interesting to me that... Um, we are, we are in this moment where there's a massive competition in like streaming television, yeah, and that is all run by giants who are willing to burn money to to get to a place where it seems like they will be the last one standing. Correct. Do you think that is a, a, like is that a good outcome? I don't think it's a bad outcome necessarily. I think that might be one of these cases of good concentration. They are all pretty good companies. They are well run. They are, I mean, they they are successful at what they do. They they do product people enjoy. Um, and they are competing hard to try to get market share. So to me, it looks like a case where we could have some... I, I, on the face of it, I don't think that's a big issue in my mind. Yeah. You have a story in the book about getting a taxi in France when you were young and how it was very hard and you were effectively priced out of the market because taxis were expensive and they were hard to acquire. And then you're like, it turns out people actually just like having a bottle of water and an iPhone charger in their cab and like some minor competition actually dra- dramatically improves customer experience. I, I agree with this story. I do think it is nice to have an iPhone charger in the car. But I want to ask specifically about Uber, and then I want to ask what WeWork. Because to me, both of them seemed extraordinarily willing to just burn money and price out their competitors in order to gain a monopoly and then flip the switch and make monopoly profits. Do you think that strategy is effective? I think with Uber, we've seen... You know, we had Mike Isaac on the show. He just wrote his book about Uber. That strategy flamed out. They have a new CEO. He's refocusing the business. It obviously led to an outcome. With WeWork, that strategy seems to have destroyed forty some billion dollars in value over time. Do you think there's ever a world in which it's it's fine to burn money on your way to a monopoly and then try to walk it back and charge? Does that work? Is that an interesting competitive? Well, you know, but I'm an economist, so I, I think of it more from the perspective of the consumers. Yeah. Do, would I want to live in a world where these guys try this? Yeah, I think I would. I mean, it's their problem if they burn money, if, or their investors' problem. <laughs> so, you know, as a consumer, or as a consumer advocate, I should say, yeah. I feel like I'm like a consumer advocate, really. Um, I want firms to try that, and I want them to burn money trying to do it. And, and if the idea they're going to get... And, it is fine to have some monopoly rents if you burn money to get there. I think there's no problem with that. We just don't want these rents to be forever. Like, there's no economy in the world that works without monopoly rents. Every single successful company has monopoly rents. So that's not the issue. The issue is the persistence. The issue is you don't want these rents to be there forever. And in the case of, well, honestly, I think Uber and WeWork are kind of different. I mean, WeWork, I just never understood. <laughs> no, but it's like, do you have the ultimate long-term, it is the, the maturity mismatch is, yeah, I mean, remember, I also teach finance, so I'm like, I see the bench, and I'm like, you're going to find this gigantic long-term lease with, like, short-term paper? <laughs> it's just that I've seen that playbook in 2008. It doesn't yeah. end well, so that's separate. Uber, it was a great idea. It's fantastic, but the truth is there are plenty of competitors now. I mean, in Europe, if you go to France, you don't, like, you don't necessarily use Uber. They all have their apps. They work just as well. They have the same prices. And so I, I think Uber created a great product, um, I don't think they're going to enjoy their monopoly rents for very long. But Uber is kind of the classic example of the network effect applied to a, a very large hardware problem. That's right? true. If all the drivers are on Uber, then all the riders are going to be on Uber, and how are you ever going to peel the driver off to go with another app? And that, that seems to be... But a, Lyft has some drivers, and if you, if you travel around um, Europe today, you're going to find many local apps that people use, essentially building on the same technology. Because the thing is, building the app is not that complicated anymore. So having an app where you track 
vehicle and then you track a consumer and then they can see each other on the app and then match. It's just, it, that become like bread and butter. Yeah. So all the taxi companies in Europe have it now. And so they can effectively compete on that way. So at the end of the day, what, if you think about the big picture, what's the end outcome is Uber created this really great idea of having an app to register and to find your, your taxi driver. The taxi driver being not necessarily somebody who does it full time. These ideas are great and they are here to stay. I'm, it's obvious to me that in 50 years, people will still have this model where we have a great app to match drivers and, and, and consumers and that the drivers are not full-time drivers. They do it because it's convenient, because they are students, because they want a second job. This is great for everybody. So I think that's going to stay. Whether or not Uber is still there or whether they run out of cash in the meantime, to be honest, as a consumer advocate, I don't really care. Yeah, I'm happy to have a, some venture capitalists subsidize my rights for me. That's effectively you. what's happening. That's capitalism. But why aren't there more competitors in New York City? You and I both live in New York. There's Uber and Lyft. There was uh, Juno. They really tried to make Juno happen. It never happened. Why are there more competitors in France and not in New York City? Well, uh, that's a specific issue about big cities, which is I think the value added of this in big cities is kind of low. I mean, like the, the future of transportation in big cities is not individual cars in my mind. I mean, I came to Georgia with my bicycle because it's, <laughs> cause it's twice faster. You know, yeah. the, average, the, the great thing with the GPS is now you can track the, the cars and, you, and we can compute the average speed, the average speed of an Uber driver or any car with a GPS below 24th Street in New York City is, extre- is like less than walking. Yeah. So I think that's, that's part of that's the <laughs> issue. You know? But I mean, it, it, that, that to me is one of these questions of, is that good concentration or bad concentration? That Uber and Lyft have become a duopoly and they're, they're the big national providers, maybe in some places. I think in Austin two years ago, there were some regional providers, but then they let Uber in and that company kind of failed out. How do you say this market needs to be competitive when it, it wants to tend towards duopoly in that way? But I, th- I don't think I don't think the, it's going to be a market that's going to be monopolized at the end. The, the yellow cabs are still there. Yeah, they, they could they could get better apps actually. To be honest, these people. But what I don't understand is if you look at at uh, many of the markets in Europe, the existing uh, taxis, which was typically these guys were monopolies often by cities, and they got crushed initially by Uber and Lyft, but they didn't disappear. They reacted by putting water bottles and USB uh, <laughs> charger in their taxis. That was great. And then by creating their own apps, which essentially works just as well, sometimes even better than the Uber or Lyft app. And so today, they are competing back. And I think the market shares have stabilized totally. So I, I think I don't see why that would not happen in the US. Yeah. Last question. And I, I think this is related to the earlier thing we were talking about, which was Google and Facebook particularly feel like targets. Let's say we break up Google and Facebook. We, we split off YouTube from Google, search. We split off Instagram and WhatsApp from Facebook. It seems natural that the next thing that Facebook would do after Instagram is cleaved off of it is build an Instagram clone. It seems natural the first thing that the Google search company would do after YouTube is moved away is build a YouTube competitor, and the first thing that YouTube would do is build a search engine. Is that the sort of right outcome to rebalance, or do you still want new entrants? Because that's the thing I've heard most is, here's what will happen. You'll split up Google from YouTube. YouTube will build a search engine. Google will build a video player. They'll fight. Everyone will be happier. And they'll try new things. It seems to me that, sure, that, that seems great. But what I really want is like new ideas to enter, and that is still too hard. So how do you solve that problem? Well, then they do have to take a stand on why you think the, the new ideas are not coming in. I think the, com- virtue would have, the competition would have two main virtues. One is, I don't think it's by chance that if you look at the privacy policy of Facebook, 
it started to really go down the drain precisely at the time where Facebook stopped fearing competition until the point where they f as long as they felt there was some real alternative to Facebook, they actually more or less uh, applied the rules that they said they would apply by not tracking their consumers at tight Facebook. And they only started to really violate their, the, pri the privacy principles when they felt that they were pretty sure there was no alternative. And in fact, they were right, because every time there was a scandal about things that was clearly outrageous, the way they shared the data or not protect the, the privacy of their, um, of their customers, um, well, nobody switched because there was nowhere to go. So I think one of the virtues of competition is that, and that's why I disagree a lot when I hear the people from Facebook arguing that they need to be big to be able to you know, either moderate content. No, that's wrong. The, the most important is not the money, it's the incentives. If, you, if you're dominant you don't have an incentive. It's like the taxi driver in Paris. It's not rocket science to put a bottle of water in your car. <laughs> and it doesn't cost any money. See, the reason they didn't do it is because they didn't have any incentives to do it. So I think incentives trump profits all the time. Incentives are way more important than profits. If you have the right incentive, you will find the money. That is spoken like a true economist. Yeah, I'm mean, a true free market guy. I can't believe it, but that's true. <laughs> no, I, I do believe it. So I think that's the, that's the first virtue of competition is we would actually have better privacy because they would have an incentive because they know that if they don't respect it, that I will switch. So I think that's the first one. And the second one is, why is it that we don't have new ideas? Yeah, why is it that for the past 10 years, essentially we haven't seen much really exciting in that field? Well, that's that because many of the firms that could have gone public decided to stay private longer. Part of it for good reason, because the private market has become more efficient, so they can sustain themselves and grow while remaining private for longer. So that's one good reason. But the other bad reason is because instead of going for IPOs, now they go for acquisitions. But the reason they go for acquisitions is because they don't think they could, they could survive independently. So they rather sell, them, sell themselves out to the existing big companies rather than trying to make it on their own with an IPO. I think that's the issue. And presumably, if you made the landscape more competitive, you would have more IPOs. Well, so you, well, you had more, you'd have more acquirers. I think you'd have to, A, create more companies, and then B, do as you said earlier, which is raise the standard for an acquisition. So you had, it was easier and more efficient to IPO than to be acquired by Amazon, say. Exactly. And so then that's the way you could bring some of the new, new ideas into, into the market. How do you, I mean, we, we talked to so many companies at sort of the midpoint of their life cycle. Uh, I think the one I always think of is Eero, which was a Wi-Fi router manufacturer. And we loved Eero and we talked to their CEO all the time. And they just basically burned through money until they, they had no choice but to sell to Amazon. And that is in some ways a good outcome, right? The people who bought that product get to continue to use their service. They're going to make more Eros. Those employees all have jobs. Yep. Whereas otherwise they might have created out. A thing that happened to them along the way that really damaged their business was Google saw that their product was successful, put out a competing Google Wi-Fi product, priced it $50 less because they could care less about the profit margin, and put it at the top of Google search. Is that the sort of behavior that like a regulator should look at it. Yes, exactly. So that's a, the, 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 the issue is exactly the second half of what you said, yeah. which is what the fact that Google had, had the power to do that. And, to, and in that case, a conflict of interest between the search engine and the, uh, the product design. But isn't that totally fair? Google owns the search engine. Yeah, but that's, why, that's the main argument for, for splitting these guys apart. And in that case, that's a good example. That's the same argument you can make for Amazon sometimes for why you would, you would want to put limits on what they can produce by themselves. Or, or the famous, you know, case of the diapers.com uh, issue yeah. uh, that Amazon. That's all, these are all these fall into this range where if the firm has too much power, it can effectively kill competition, either to then kill it or replace it and raise prices later. So this is something that 
the regulator should be looking at, absolutely. But the thing with IPO, that's very, the thing that's tricky and important to keep in mind is you are really in deeply in the, in the world of the law of small numbers, which is even in the best case scenario, there are very, very few IPOs. M even in a fully competitive economy, most of the firms that are, uh, start both of the startups are either going to fail or be acquired. IPOs is always a tiny, it's like the sliver, it's like a very small number. The problem is that the, it's also very sensitive to competitive conditions. So if that small number goes from being small to being zero, 15 years later, you are in trouble. And that's exactly what we've seen. Having a few IPOs from time to time is very different from having essentially no significant IPO in that field for 10 years. And that's what we had de facto. And that's the big problem. How, do you, how should people think about this problem? I mean, they can go buy your book, presumably from Amazon, which is great. So let's like help that monopoly out. Um, <laughs> or Barnes & Nobles. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, go to the Or your local uh, store. I mean, I, what I love, it, the, the, one of the things I discovered was really great when you write a book is you get pictures from people who find your book in a bookstore and send you a picture yeah. from local bookstore. It's just like a warm feeling. Okay, so support your local bookstores by yeah. buying your book. What's the next thing people should think about? Well, there are plenty of ideas people have proposed to, so specifically the case of mergers, there are plenty of proposals to review the way we do, we enforce, or we even we analyze mergers. That the typical case in the past was uh, if the firm is big enough, if the target and the acquirer are, are big enough, then you're going to investigate. But if the target is too small, then you're not going to investigate. But then ask yourself, okay, why do we mean by small? Well, of course, in the old days, by small we meant well, either you don't have many employees or your revenues are not very high or your profits are not very high. And you were big if you had large revenues or large profits. And somehow that was a fine definition. But of course, that definition fails completely if the target is a firm that is growing extremely fast and yet has essentially zero revenues today because they are pricing anything for free to build their market share, right? So then we, we need to define a new metric and you could look at, or you could lower the revenue threshold but we've tried that in Germany. It doesn't work very well because then you end up bothering mom and pop shops for their acquisition, which makes no sense. <laughs> so that's not a good solution. At the end of that, the two things that seem to be making sense is, one, is you should pay attention to the, the price of the transaction. In other words, even if the target doesn't seem to be making any money, if somebody's willing to pay $10 billion for it, you should look at it. So part of the information that the regulator should be looking at is the value of the transaction. That would be one change compared to what we used to do. And the second one is we probably need to have um, a different policy with respect to um, reviewing the case later. You can say, well, you can merge, but I will, I, I will ha have the right to revisit the case in one year or two. And that's also that would be a change in the, in the way we enforce antitrust. It's not ideal because you would like to be able to say yes and no for sure. But in a world where you, I think it's better to admit that there's uncertainty and therefore we have rules that allow us to reverse rather than pretending we know and make the wrong decisions. Yeah. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank went, you. I couldn't stop talking. I could talk to you about this all day and all night. But the book is out now. It's called The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Free Markets in Your Local Mom and, Mom and Pop Bookstore. Yes. Which should be free to make it any acquisition it wants from what I got from that last answer. Uh, can they tweet at you? Can they email you? What's, yeah, what's yeah. best way to hold of you? Uh, yeah, can find me on Twitter. It's Tomafi2, I think. Very good. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, my thanks to Thomas Philippon for joining us. His book is The Great Reversal, How America Gave Up on Free Markets. It's out now. You can go get it. We'll be back later this week with a chat show. And then the week before Thanksgiving, we're turning the Vergecast upside down. We're doing a series of vignettes about pirate radio. Those will come out Tuesday, Thursday, and Tuesday. I'm really excited about these. 
Our team is working hard on them. Andrew, our producer, has been cranking away on them. I think you're really going to like them. Look for that starting the 19th. You can also tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. I love hearing from you. I love hearing your thoughts on the show and what we talk about. Send me that feedback, and we'll see you soon. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.